This is the Virgin Radio Pridecast. Hello, I am Matt Kane, and welcome to my Sunday roast on Virgin Radio Pride. Now then, what's been going on this week? Well, in my world, it's all been about my new book. I've started writing a new book for the first time in ages. Once again, it's got a gay central character. I can't say too much about it, but I am thinking about it at the moment as a gay Shirley Valentine or educating Rita. And I'm not fully immersed in it yet, but I have to say I am really enjoying it and I'm really excited about where it's going to go. What else has been going on outside my world? Well, let's talk about OnlyFans because last week they announced a ban on explicit content. Apparently, this was because of pressure from banking partners and payment providers. Anyway, this week, the site suspended the ban, saying it wants to support our diverse creator community. Obviously, here at Virgin Radio Pride, we are all for diversity. And I know, I have to say, I know a lot of gay men who are fans of the site. So I imagine that within our community, this news is going to be greeted positively. And elsewhere in our community, let's talk about the queer athletes at the Paralympics. The games have kicked off in Tokyo. There's already gold medals for Team GB, which is brilliant. Congratulations. And just like with the Olympics, there is a record number of LGBTQ plus athletes taking part. We wish them all good luck. Apart from the Paralympics, though, most of the international news you've been hearing this week, I'm sure, will have been focused on Afghanistan. There's obviously all kinds of horror stories coming out of the country, but our thoughts also, or in particular, should I say, go out to LGBTQ plus Afghans. There's lots of horror stories coming out at the moment, um, starting to emerge about... Punishments being doled out by the Taliban, torture, all kinds of horrendous things. We are sending all our love and solidarity to anyone from our community out there. For now, though, let's try to put those horrors out of our minds and get on with these discussions on our show. As usual, everyone is welcome to join in. If you want to contact us on social media, we are on at Virgin Radio UK. Please use the hashtag Virgin Radio Pride. I'm on at Matt Kane Writer. Or you can email us on pride at virginradio.co.uk. Please do get involved. Now, who have we got on today's show? My guests are going to be Matthew Todd. He was editor of Attitude magazine from 2008 to 2016, and no less than Prince William sat for the cover of his final issue. His first book, Straight Jacket, opened up the subject of gay shame and internalised homophobia. It was described by Sir Elton John as an essential read for every gay person on the planet. His play, Blowing Whistles, has been performed in London, Manchester, Sydney, Melbourne and the United States. And his second and most recent book, Pride, tells the story of the fight for LGBTQ plus equality. 
Matthew and I, that's me, the other Matthew, could be confusing. Anyway, we're joined by a third person who isn't called Matthew. That is Alex Woolhouse. She is the pro bono and legal strategy coordinator of transgender youth charity Mermaids. She also hosts the She Said, They Said podcast with Virgin Radio Pride's very own Shivani Darve. On it, they discuss the latest news affecting, affecting the trans, non-binary and gender diverse communities. Alex was on the show a few weeks ago and she was so good and so refreshing, we've got her back on again. And this is what we're going to be discussing. First up... If a writer, musician or artist has created great work but said bad things about the LGBTQ plus community, can we still enjoy that work? In other words, can we separate the arts from the artist? Secondly, what has caused the recent rise in trans-exclusionary and gender-critical discourse in the UK? And what can we do to combat it? Thirdly, when we look down on countries for having lower levels of acceptance of queer people than we do, can we sometimes be guilty of cultural arrogance? And finally, for a little light relief, we'll be coming back to the topic of great artists and discussing our favourite queer musicians. I'm Matt Kane, and you're listening to Sunday Roast on Virgin Radio Pride. Hello to my guests, Matthew Todd and Alex Woolhouse. How are you guys today? Oh, just perfect. Thank you for having me back. Thank you for joining us. And thanks for joining us, Toddy. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for asking me in. Well, brilliant. So we're going to be chatting to both of you and find out what you're up to and all that. But we're going to do that in between our debates. And we're going to start the first one straight away. We are going to be talking about whether it's possible to separate art from the artist. So we've spoken on the show before about US rapper the baby and his offensive homophobic and frankly ignorant comments about HIV and AIDS to be honest I don't want to give what he said any more airtime and thankfully he's been pulled from the lineup of nearly every festival he was going to be performing at but with plenty of other examples of artists who've made ignorant or offensive comments about our community we want to ask can we separate great arts from an artist who we may think has done bad things or said bad things. Can we and should we still enjoy work created by problematic writers, film directors, musicians? What do you think, Matthew? You're smiling wryly. What oh, are you, you thinking? You devil. You devil. <laughs> this, is a, I think this is a really difficult one because if you're going to be kind of very kind of clear and PC about it, you'd say, absolutely not. Never watch it again. Never listen to it again. But in reality... I mean, I mean, I'm old now. I've been to a disco for a while, but I think they still play Michael Jackson records. You know, there's so many people. I mean, I have completely lost track about who's done what, who said what, who did this, who did that. I mean, I, I was I was reading that Patricia Highsmith had said anti-Semitic things, and I love the talented Mr. Ripley. Am I going to say I'm, I'm never going to watch that again? I'm a bit, a bit honest. I, I love that film. I, I will watch that film again. I think you just have to shut shut it down. I think it depends who it is as well, and it depends what they've said. I know Mel Gibson said some really homophobic things in the eighties and the nineties, yeah, yeah. and he's not someone I particularly. I, I kind of I haven't seen any of his films for a long time, and I and I guess I probably wouldn't go and see a film of his now because I would think mm, just don't I don't like you very right. much. Right, it's uh, right. So it's really difficult, isn't it? So let's let's rewind a bit and let's ask so Alex, what what is our definition of 
art? Because if we're going to talk about whether you can separate the art from the artist, is so I like to think of it, but maybe I'm being idealistic. I think of it as a kind of pure form of self-expression on behalf of the artist. But that in itself leads us into problems, doesn't it? How do you see a piece of artistic work? I think simply it can just be a creative output of a person. I think that's all that it needs to be because, you know, that can be a book, it can be a film, it can be any sort of creative pursuit um, that a person's self is, I guess, entwined with. I think it needs to be creative. Otherwise, if, you know, what's the point really because it's just a piece of information? Well, what some people think is if it's just kind of creative pursuits and any kind of output, then that's craft. And art is when you have... It's this idea of the artistic genius, this self-expression that could mm. only come from them. Yeah, when and it has merit. Why, yes, and that's why it's um, originals are worth more than copies because it's meant to be a piece of their soul, which is all a bit... You're looking dubious, Matthew. Well, I mean, it depends who we're talking about, isn't it? I mean... Like I say, with Michael Jackson, those some of those songs are great. I, you know, I've got a little nephew. I'm really looking forward to showing him the Thriller video. It's such a fun thing. I loved seeing that when I was 10 years old. I will just show him that and, you know, hopefully he'll enjoy it. But I, I, I don't know. I think it's such a complicated thing. And it really depends who it is. I mean, I can't think of who are the people that have said really homophobic things about the gay and the LGBT community. I mean, who are those people? I mean, there's not many... I mean, I know we've got J.K. Rowling right in the centre of all the yeah. trans stuff. So I think she's a particular person, isn't she, in a particular case. And I think maybe she's a, a relevant one to talk about. I can't think of many people that have said vehemently homophobic things that are still big celebrities at the moment. I mean, Well, that's, that's interesting, actually, because um, it's all about social context, isn't it? And it's all about, I'm not saying this excuses somebody being homophobic in the past, but the point is now... Um, you can't really say them and have a career. And also, you can't extract economics from the discussion. But then you think, right, well, if somebody does say bad things, whether it's DeBaby, for example, who's now being cancelled from everything, lost deals and all the rest of it, should they be punished financially? I mean, maybe we can still enjoy what they're creating, but should we support it and give them a voice and our money? What do you think, Alex? I'm not sure, to be honest, because I think I think it does depend on who it is, what they've said. Let's take J.K. Rowling for an example. I find it difficult to enjoy her work knowing what she thinks about people like me. And that is simply a, a physical, mental reaction to it. So, for example, every night I listen to audiobooks to go to sleep. And I listen to them on YouTube. So it's not, she's not getting any money from them. But something came up that was like, I think it was like Philosopher's Stone or something. And I was listening to it and I was just like, I actually can't relax to this because I know that the person writing this um, thinks that I am a physical threat to, you know, um, to people. In my opinion, that's what I think that her comments think. But I mean, Matt, we should hope that you can separate the art from the artist because you're a wonderful writer, but you're a terrible person. <laughs> so I just really hope that our listeners agree with me. Well, can I just say, interestingly, right, so I like to think that when I write a book, it's um, got lots of me in it. Mm. Um, having said that, I don't necessarily express all my political views on specific subjects in there. So what would you say if somebody said about J.K. Rowling, for example, 
um, if she's not discussing trans issues at all, or even gender or anything, then um, we shouldn't stop ourselves from enjoying her work. What do you think, Matthew? Do you still? We are you still a fan of her writing? I love. I, well, I loved her and I loved those books. You know, when when it all came out, I just thought it was such an amazing thing. All these kids were reading books and to, to have this mega hit, I mean, probably the most successful children's author or one of the, maybe the most successful author in the world in, in history. And I always loved her. And I find it really sad. I find it really painful. And I would say it's the same as Alex. You know, some Harry Potter thing was on on ITV the other day and it came on and I was like, oh, okay, there's Daniel. And I've obviously, I've interviewed Daniel Radcliffe many times and knew some of the people who worked on the film and you sit there and you watch it and just think this is just spoilt for me now i just can't just go i love this i love this and that's and their kind of fantasy films where part of it is just childhood and innocence and joy and now i just go oh this is just really painful and it triggers a whole load of things in me as well as a gay man you know with jk rowling and all these people that are anti-trans just the frustrations you know i wrote my book straight jacket about what we go through at school and you never hear in these discussions about how we support, how we should be supporting gay kids, gender non-conforming kids, kids who may be confused about whether they're trans or not. They seem to be completely left out of the discussion. It's all this kind of like ethical issue for them. But I kind of think, where were people like you when I was younger? So, so when I watch Harry Potter now, yeah, it's 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 painful. It's it's sad. Well, it's difficult also. I mean, we can talk about theoreticals and the academic approach to whether we can separate the art from the artist. But the truth is, these days, any writer or any artist has to promote their work across old media, new media. And they often do this by opening up about their life, their opinions. So it's profile pieces, personality pieces. And the idea is that if you like them, you might buy their book or stream their music. So does it not follow then that if you don't, you won't buy their music. Yeah, I completely agree. I simply don't want to give any of JK Rowling any of my money <laughs> because she has enough and I think she's not helping me as a person. I don't want um, her messages to be spread. Um, so no, I don't want to give her any of my money. Saying that, someone like Azealia Banks, for example, who... Yes. I think is an artist that has said extremely controversial and definitely homophobic things. A lot of gay people still buy her music. Her fan base, she describes it as for gay people. And so, you know, clearly not everyone agrees with me. And, you know, I still listen to Azealia Banks music. I still think of myself as a very, you know, prominent LGB ally. Um, but yeah, I, th I think, I don't know, there's something about J.K. Rowling. It's just where I draw the line. It's, it's very complicated though, isn't it? Like I was just thinking about um, Jodie Foster and Silence of the Lambs. And when I was younger, when the Silence of the Lambs came out in 89 or 90, we all kind of knew she was gay, but she wasn't out. There were lots of campaigns, you know, to try and out her and stuff like that, whether you agreed with them or not. That film came out. There was a kind of, you know, at the time, Basic Instinct had come out and there'd been petitions from in, in America saying that, that Basic Instinct was uh, homophobic. People were saying Silence of the Lambs was transphobic and it's a very complicated thing. And I know lots of trans people have different opinions about that film. So that's complicated. The thing is, I, I can't help it. I absolutely love The Silence of the Lambs. One of my favourite films. I absolutely love it. Even though at the time I felt very pained. And I also think about Jodie. If she'd come out back then, it would have really helped kids like me. But I still love it. Still love her. Isn't it terrible that our enjoyment of 
the narrative arts and any kind of product from the creative industries is so kind of overwrought with emotions for us when for other sectors of the population it isn't. Well back in the day if you didn't have social media we wouldn't have heard about all of these things they just would have come and gone they probably wouldn't have been reported massively they would have been shut down and then you could argue that it was better in that way. Well is it is it a purer form of experiencing a piece of art if you know nothing about the artist? Well, it depends. I mean, obviously, we we were both big Madonna fans, weren't we? So back in the day, you'd you'd wait until a new album was coming out, a record was coming out, and it was like you'd go and buy NME and you'd be in a Madonna interview, and you'd all be kind of very excited about, oh, she said something controversial. Whereas now, it's bing, 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 constantly on social media. It comes, it blows up. Some things blow up and become big things. Some don't become big things. It's just, I mean, it's all a big stew of craziness, really. Okay, can I read out some listener comments? So... Pop star Hazel Dean has said on Twitter, art and artists are as one. Profit from a demographic you abuse and ridicule is unacceptable. Sinead on Twitter, what about Michael Jackson and all the allegations against him? Is his music not still great disco? It's still, I was at a wedding where Billie Jean cleared the dance floor to just two of us, but it's still an amazing song. So actually there's the can and the should, isn't there? There's slightly different things there. Nobody's saying it's not still an amazing song. It's whether we should enjoy it. Kevin Steer on Instagram says this, actually. The short answer is yes, you can separate from the artist, art from the artist. Should we enjoy it is a different question. Aimed more at social responsibility to support the people art perspectives we want more of. On principle, I'll turn off someone I know has held anti-LGBTQ views because I don't want to give them any more attention or value. Our attention and time is the most valuable asset we have. So in that sense, we have a societal responsibility to spend that on people who are forwarding the conversation in the direction we aspire to. So that would explain, that would back up your reasons, Alex, for boycotting J.K. Rowling. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I just simply don't want to give her my money because I don't think she's benefiting me anymore. I think she did have a benefit to me. I think she was really amazing. Um, And the creation of the Harry Potter films was like just absolutely, and books was just absolutely amazing at the time. But I think now... I don't want to hear her outdated views on trans people. Okay, Matthew, can I put two other listener comments to you? Um, Gillian on Twitter says, I wonder if it makes a difference if the person died a long time ago. Wagner was associated with the Nazis, but we don't talk about it much. He was a brilliant composer. Reverend Richard Coles on Facebook says something along the same lines. We have to separate, we have to separate art from artists, but it's much easier to do that with Jesualdo than it is Rolf Harris. So do you oh, think... Oh, goodness me. Do you think with time um, it makes it easier for us? Um, I, think it I think it depends who it is because I'm never going to be listening to any of Rolf Harris's hits again. I can tell you that for nothing. I mean, there are some people, aren't there, like that? I mean, like, there's, like no, you know what I mean? Like, I never, I, I mean, I find that devastating because so we're of a generation that grew up loving Rolf Harris. Absolutely thought he was. Oh, I know. The My nice, dad. Yeah, My... the nicest person ever when we were growing up. Yeah. And then suddenly what happened happened and it came out. It's just. I mean, it's just so it's Well, it's really sad because my dad used to sing Two Little Boys to me and my brother, and that's like a really happy memory. Mm. And we think, well, we had no idea of who Rolf Harris was yeah. when he was singing that. Can yeah. we still listen to it? I, no. 
No. It's really difficult, isn't it? It's the whole thing is so difficult. So, what do you think about historical context? If we think about, or not so much historical context, because actually I've said before, I don't think coming from a time where everyone around you is saying homophobic things excuses them. But what about the distance? Well, you that know you what? Get? You know what? I'm a massive fan of Stephen King. I absolutely love him, and I was um, I haven't read I haven't read Salem's Lot. And I went on to uh, a very popular book site or whatever it is, an, an audio thing, and, and thought, oh, I might buy the book and I might listen to it. And so I listened, I pressed the button to hear the little clip of the audio book. And in that 30 second clip, the F word was used. Some character says the F word. Sorry, now, when I, you say the F word, you're not saying the F, F word that's not, offensive not to everybody. The you're F saying word the one that's, that's ex- offensive to us. Yeah, the, to yeah, gay men. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so it came up in this thing and I just thought, <laughs> I, I love Stephen King. And it's in the context of that book, in the context of that time. I'm sure it's about a character um, being shown to be, you know, ignorant and unkind and all the rest of it. But I have to say, I mean, I don't think this is necessarily his fault, but you'd think that maybe that company would not have included that word in that clip that is so easily accessible. And I do think for things like that, there should be a warning because, like, for instance, the film Teen Wolf. When I was a kid, I absolutely loved Michael J. Fox. Came out within the same year as Back to the Future. Went to see Teen Wolf. Loved Michael J. Fox. He, they used the F word in that film. When, when we were growing up, they used the F word in every oh, other film. And it was time. horrendous. You, you felt you never knew when you were going to the cinema, you'd suddenly be, like, you know, abused and bashed over the head. And Teen Wolf is a, is a particular one. I, I still feel a little twinge of sadness when I see Michael J. Fox, even though he didn't write it. I was thinking, oh, I wish you hadn't said that in that film. I am Matt Cain, and you're listening to my Sunday Rose on Virgin Radio Pride. We are talking about whether we can separate the art from the artist, and specifically artists who may have said bad things about our queer community. Before I go back to my brilliant panel, Alex Wallace and Matthew Todd, I'm just going to read out some more listener comments. So Aaron on Facebook says, Bart wrote about this in 1967 in The Death of the Author. I still think it's taken for granted that interpretation shouldn't be limited to biographical concerns about the author. But I think it depends which school of thought you belong to. And today, everything is seemingly political and one's views are of the utmost importance to one's art. Psychologist Philippa Perry says on Facebook, we do separate the art from the artist until we know, and then it feels a bit tainted. Bart is all very well, but we're humans, not logical machines like computers. Okay, so that's interesting because um, talking about can and should we enjoy art, actually, if we hear a song by Michael Jackson and know anything about it, actually, we have an innate response to it, don't we? So all these things we're talking about, are we going to talk ourselves out of enjoying good art that we shouldn't be deprived of, that we should be able to enjoy? What do you think, Alex? So Philippa Perry thinks we're not computers. We can't determine how we are going to respond. Do you know what I mean? I agree with Philippa because no one can tell you to like something or not like something. We can't tell the listeners, you shouldn't like this. You can't like this because of, you know, because someone has said something. Um, it is that human response. And I think that was what I was talking about earlier, that it feels tainted. It feels different. I can't enjoy it. I can't relax listening to it, knowing, as Philippa says, what they think about me. All right. Can we broaden out the discussion a bit and look at problematic art in general? I'm going to throw some things at you. Toddy, our generation, The Cosby Show. I used to love The Cosby Show. And it's particularly problematic now because of, 
you know, oh, everything that's emerged about Bill Cosby art is emerging. But in that, he was playing a version of himself. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, I think this is about individual cases, isn't it? About what people have done. And he was, I can't remember the ins and outs, but I think he was convicted, wasn't he? Um, yeah. So, I, I, yeah, that show about him, no, no. Well, I, I how about... I couldn't watch that. Right, so what about, if you look at somebody like Picasso... Amazing art treated his women terribly. You know, two went mad, two killed themselves. Dickens, he was actually a big social reformer, a champion of the report of the poor. He dumped his wife for his mistress, treated his wife terribly. Oh, we'd uh, never listen to another song or read a book or do anything, would we? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So what do you, so, right, so... Because people are complicated and awful and people do, like, you know, we can have a big discussion about the morality of cheating on somebody. I mean... I, you know, I think most people are not going to go, oh, I'm never going to read, you know, Christmas Carol ever again because he cheated on his wife. So I think it's individual cases, isn't it? And everyone has to make their own, you know, choices. I mean, if you're someone that, if you've someone that, I don't know, was married and your partner cheated and you might go, oh, I don't like, I don't want to read th those books anymore because of what Dickens did. So, uh, yeah, I think it depends on, on every individual. It's so life. hard, isn't it, Alex? Because, um, you know, what? who are we to say what constitutes a good and a bad person? Our definition um, as a society as a whole of a good or a bad person changes over time. And um, as Matthew just said, we're all so complicated. Are we just getting ourselves into uh, problems if we start talking about good art, bad people, good, bad people? Yeah, I mean, there aren't, there is no, you know, complete black and white, right or wrong. You know, like people are completely varied and diverse and I think it's slightly different when say for Dickens because we know that he is not going to benefit from us watching A Christmas Carol now um, but you know in the same way that say J.K. Rowling does benefit from us engaging with Harry Potter books and stuff you know will it be easier for our children grandchildren to engage with these uh, artistic endeavours within the context the social context of the time for example transphobia that is kind of rampant at the moment will they be able to say well jk rowling's experiences were informed by the culture of transphobia that she was writing in at the time i think probably yes and does but does that what well, we can't say now that that excuses them so consequently why should it excuse them in a hundred years time or is it just that if you know it's like Toddy said the word triggering earlier. It's about our emotions, mm. isn't it, actually? And presumably emotions will have um, become less intense over time. Yeah, like people now don't think that poor people are feckless like they did in Victorian England, I would like to think, <laughs> and that they were lazy or like morally corrupt. And so, you know, I think, think you know, uh, opinions about people and groups of people change. And so we can look at art that discusses them or that, artists have discussed them slightly differently as that changes as well. Okay, so, right, talking about um, over time, the big example, somebody brought it up earlier, one of our listeners, the composer Wagner, he was not only anti-Semitic, he was totally pro-Nazi and an absolute nightmare, but the Israeli conductor Daniel Barenboim is a huge champion of his music. He makes a point of playing it in Israel. Um, he says, his famous quote is, not a single one of the notes Wagner composed is anti-Semitic. Um, but classical music is essentially an abstract art form. There's no lyrics. So um, 
does that make a difference? If it's an abstract art form, like we're talking about Picasso, if if Picasso and Dickens, Dickens writes a book in which people have relationships with their wives. He treated his wife terribly. Picasso draws um, or paints um, his muses, the women. Is there a difference between kind of abstract narrative and narrative arts. Do you know what I mean? When we're talking about this. You're so, so deep, love. <laughs> what have you had for breakfast? I realised halfway through saying that it was a bit too deep. I was slightly losing the thread. I mean, I have what to say, that I, I didn't know that about... I mean, I, I, to be honest, I'm not often down at the Albert Hall listening to Wagner, but I, I never knew that, that, uh, that his views about that. I never knew that he... I'd find it quite difficult to consciously go, oh, two tickets for Wagner. He used to like the Nazis, please. You know, I'd find that quite hard. Now all right, all right. Well, speaking of Nazis, Hitler was a painter. What what would happen if we saw one of Hitler's paintings oh, on the wall? Oh, I take it down. I put, I take it down. I wouldn't want any Hitler pictures in my house. I have but, to say, call me old-fashioned. But what if you saw one and you didn't know who it was by? Well, you might go, "That's a pretty picture." When they said, "Oh, yeah, it's lovely." Hitler, <laughs> Hitler did it. He gave it to my auntie. I'd be like, "Oh, no, thanks. What's wrong with you? Take, put it in the bin." Looking at the other side of the scale, what do we do, Alex? If we find out on the other side of the scale from Hitler, if our favorite pop star mm. votes for a different political party to you, so. Do you remember, me and Toddy will, when some of the Spice Girls said they were Tories? Margaret Ooh. Thatcher was the original Spice Girl, was the quote. I then had a little wobble in my devotion to the Spice Girls. Um, what do you think about this kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, that's not girl power, is it, at all? But I, again, I think there is there are shades to this. If they vote, if the Spice Girls voted BNP, I don't think I would... I want to have anything to do with them if they voted conservative like a lot of people do in this country i would find that maybe easier to swallow but i think that's a really interesting one with the spice girls though, because i do remember that was the moment where they did have a bit of a wobble because people were saying hang on a minute you know you know a lot of their fans were from the lgbtq community and yeah. you know thatcher was uh brought in section 28 and so on so yeah that was a difficult moment but i think that's it's really interesting isn't it because I used to love Madonna because she used to speak out and she was very political and that was quite a brave thing for her to do even supporting gay people when she was a you know had a oh, mass kind of mainstream yeah, audience yeah. in the middle of America in the 90s and stuff but in I think, the 80s in the mid 80s yeah. early 80s it was unbelievable but I think when um, someone talks about their political views I mean it, it, it will divide people so I was you know, surfing the internet the other day and I was looking at Frankie Howard and he was saying oh no I should never talk about politics oh no comedians should never talk about politics and I thought it was a shame because I, I kind of that to me politics are really important and i want to know about someone like frankie howard i'd be really fascinated i mean probably was he an old tory i don't know maybe he was but that may put people off that might put a lot of people off if you know when, when you know and and if you're right wing and someone says they're left it's like dolly parton she never says she's never spoken in, in favor of one party political, poli poli politics, politics. yeah she talks about supporting the lgbtq community and being nice to everybody but you kind of want to say can you say something unpleasant about trump please dolly <laughs> Okay, right. So, well, and also sometimes silence is complicity, isn't it? I'm not mm. saying it is in Dolly's case. But right, just to wrap this up on a positive note, I'm going to read out a comment from our listener, Adrian, who got in touch on Facebook. I think for me, it's important that I choose my own response. I don't want to be told who or what I can or can't see here participating by some self-appointed guardian of gay moral standards. So, what do we think? Is, me. is our conclusion going to be that it's up to all of us as individuals? Yes, absolutely. Everything is. Um, if you want to, you know, if you can enjoy something, then who is to tell you that you can't 
Absolutely. I am Matt Kane. This is my Sunday roast. And now I am delighted to have a little pause between our debates and chat to Matthew Todd. Hello. Hi. So let's start straight away by talking about your book, Straight Jacket. It was labelled by Elton John, an essential read for every gay person on the planet. I agree. I've read it. I think everybody needs to read it. Did you, when you started writing it, did you know... Uh, obviously you believed you needed to start talking about gay shame and get that topic out there, but did you know it was going to have such an impact and change the conversation to such an extent? Um, I, I think I thought it would, yeah, because I, I suppose it was all such a big revelation to me when I first started to understand some of that stuff. I mean, it's funny now when we talk about LGBT mental health, it's kind of a given people do talk about these issues now and they talk about gay shame and they talk about, you know, the trauma that we have growing up in, in the world that tr doesn't treat us very well. But at the time, that was really, really controversial. I remember years ago when I was deputy editor at Attitude, someone suggested a, a feature about uh, the high suicide rates in the gay male community. It was just someone saying, I, I've, I've lost a lot of people to suicide. And I remember it was a very kind of, oh, can we say that? Is it too depressing? Is it too upsetting? Is it true? Is it this? Will it upset everybody? But I think we would talk about that now and it's a very painful thing and I think I think there was a period where yeah where, where the gay community was all about kind of you know constantly celebrating everything and positive stories only were allowed and and that's important in a way you know it's important to especially to you know for young people to give them hope and so on but um yeah it meant that we didn't talk about some of the more difficult things but also a lot of um young people don't know that much about some of the causes of these difficult things you know and one of the other thing that you've written about most recently your book pride lgbtq plus history mm. some of the things and there's a lot of history in straitjacket isn't there i know one of my favorite chapters or the one that made the most impact on me is when you talk about some of the headlines we used to read in the tabloids at the time and um what tories used to say top tories used to say about um gay people. Do you think it's important that all these years later young people know about the roots of these problems or is it better for them to just be able to shrug it off now and enjoy themselves? Well I think it's really important people aren't bogged down by the negativity of the past. I think that's important. But I also do think it's really important that people know history. I mean, even of my generation, you know, at the time I remember seeing in the early 90s, I remember Ian McKellen saying on some TV show, it's really important people know about the people that have paved the way for us all as a community. And that was the early 90s. And I, I bumped into him in heaven and said, oh, you're amazing. I'm drunk. <laughs> you're fantastic. I love you. Um, but, but I think now I do think people are completely in the dark about actually the history. I mean even some of the most basic history about things that happened in in the 80s and 90s and you know i mean i mean I've, I've spoken at events where people younger people have not even known what stonewall was so oh, i know and i've said before on this show um when everybody was talking about how brilliant it's the sim was the russell t davis drama which it was the number of people who said i had no idea any of that happened it's like really you know it does. I, I mean, I find it very frustrating. I mean, as you know, I'm very passionate about climate change and what's happening yes. in the environment and supporting Extinction Rebellion. And it's like when I see people kind of not understanding those issues and, and people saying, oh, you shouldn't protest. It's like, how do you think we won our rights? We had to protest. Protest is the only thing that works. It's really important when there's life or death issues to protest. And the Stonewall rights were, were, were big. You know, they were, you know, they were, I mean, I'm against violence, but the Stonewall rights were very violent. There were firebombs. There were this. There, were, there wasn't just like a nice bunch of people asking for their rights. So I think it's just important important that people know history and uh, because 
you know, that's that old phrase, isn't there, that if you don't understand where you've come from, you're kind of destined to repeat the past. And we are in a very difficult political time. You know, I, I often, actually, I think I say this in, in my Pride book. I remember when I was editor of Attitude and we started the Attitude uh, Pride Awards where we gave awards to people in the community. We gave one to Maureen Duffy, who was the first British lesbian to come out in public life in the 60s. She was absolutely amazing. No one knew who she was. I mean, I hadn't even known who she was until I'd become the editor, really researched a bit. But no one in the room who knew who she was. Vitally important person. It's terrible. She came up it? and made this speech when we gave her an, an award. And she said, you've got to be really careful because the price of all this kind of you know advancing is that you have to be vigilant in case we go back. And I posted about it on Facebook and had loads of people saying, we're never going to go back. We can never risk our rights. That was before Donald Trump was president. That was before um, Nigel Farage was such a big figure, before we'd had Brexit, before things, you know, before, you know, the, the virus that we've had, the COVID and stuff, you know, it, it, things can go backwards. And I do think we're heading, you know, because of the environment, you know, it's going to stress society a lot. And I think minorities always you know, to get 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 the blame when when economies and societies are stressed. There's yeah, there's scapegoating. That's interesting. You should say that because I wanted to ask you about climate change. You mentioned the history of you know the um, protest movement behind LGBTQ plus equality, mm. um, and there was something you said that made me think. Um, you know, there's a there's a parallel with climate change activism now. I know you're a very passionate climate change activist, and some of Extinction Rebellions. Um, protests come under criticism for being so forceful. Um, why is it that you? Um, what is it? Was is there any parallel between your passion for LGBTQ plus rights and climate change? Is that it? Is it about minorities being squeezed out when push comes to shove, or is it just that you think this is the most? important issue out there right now well i mean david attenborough says it's the biggest threat we've faced in thousands of years and the collapse of civilization is on the horizon i don't think people hear those words and understand that it's real that that is really happening we're talking about you know food production stopping you know the, the pentagon and the ministry of defense said there may be more wars because of this you know we're in a really really bleak bad place and so that's going to be bad for everyone it's not that lgbt people go oh we've got our own planet to go to when everything starts burning and flooding you know we're going to be in trouble so there's no there's no good having all of these rights that we fought for for so long and I was played a tiny role in that you know I was at Stonewall in the early 90s you know I was shaking tins for the Terence Higgins Trust and getting signatures and things like that we did all of that we everyone worked really really hard other people far 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 more than me but that is all at risk you know we have to look at other issues too it's not just the specific issues that are specific to the LGBT community you know keeping the planet stable and society stable is really important because I don't want to live in a very violent world because there's lots of people as we all know that hate gay people that hate trans people and at the moment law and order holds them back well if that starts to be strained then what's to hold them back okay um you also mentioned um gay media before obviously you've um, you were editor of attitude for a long time um and you were talking about how, you know, you talked about how there was a period when it was all positive stories. It just made me think, you know, it's changed actually a lot, gay, lesbian, queer media. And there's talk that it needs to change, it needs to adapt again in the future. Post-pandemic, our needs as a community have changed. What do you think of the state of gay media and do you think it is going to adapt and change? You know what? I don't. I don't really know to be honest because I'm so. I, I, the way I feel about it now is there's so few voices in the LGBT community talking about uh, the environment and these bigger issues. I let the younger people and the other journalists who are still very very passionate about LGBT issues, which I am too, but I let them get on with it and let them fight those things. 
while I'm focusing more on climate stuff. And I do that because I've got, you know, younger people in my family and my life, but also because I'm gay and also because I've got, you know, I've got trans friends and, you know, LGBTQ people. We're all we're all in deep, deep trouble because of what's happening with the environment. So I, I consider it to be a gay issue. I consider it to be an issue for people of colour, an issue about race, gender, all of these things. It's it's everything else. You know, we're, we only, we're all on, you know, right in the studio now, we're on the planet. There's not another planet. So everything else is within, you know, the safety of, of the planet. And away from um, activism, is there anything, just very quickly, is there anything you're working on creatively? What's the future? I'm doing a ballet, babes. <laughs> I'm going to come on in a tutu and like an elephant. Um, what are you working on, Tommy, I'm, do- Tommy. I'm working on a one-man show about the about Straight Jacket, which I'm really excited about, a theatre piece, which the idea would be that it would be me. I'm trying to go back into doing stand-up comedy, which I used to do before I became really depressed uh, <laughs> and an alcoholic. Um, true thing. Um, so I want to go back to doing that yeah i'm writing some more books trying to think about ideas you know what it's like it's hard writing books it takes a while doesn't it i know i've just started one this week it is hard i'm not going to finish it for months and months and months it's hard but stick at it because we all want to read them oh bless you bless you thanks (laughs) mum next we've spoken just now about jk rowling and the comments she's made about trans people but what has caused the recent rise in anti-trans and gender critical discourse our brilliant panel are going to be sticking around to discuss this and we'll also be joined i'm really happy that we're going to be joined by actor director and trans activist jake graff My brilliant panel, Matthew Todd and Alex Woolhouse, are still here. And now we're going to be talking about the rise in trans-exclusionary hate, discourse, whatever you want to call it. So, a few years ago, in 2015, I think it was, it seemed like major progress was being made in attitudes to trans people. Many media commentators, in fact, talked about it being a trans tipping point. I remember the excitement. Fast forward to five or six years later, and it seems that not a day goes by without a wave of anti-trans sentiment being expressed online or in the mainstream media. In fact, it's becoming so bad and so widespread that the discussion around trans issues is often labelled a culture war. But what has caused this rise in anti-trans discourse in the UK and what can we do to combat it? I am thrilled that at this point we are joined by Jake Graff. He is an actor, director and screenwriter. He's known for his roles in films such as The Danish Girl and Colette. He's also known for his high-profile trans activism. Much of this alongside his now wife, Hannah, who's equally brilliant. Last year, the two of them featured in a Channel 4 documentary about their journey to become parents to baby daughter Millie. Jake, thank you very much for joining us again. Thank you so much for having me again. It's wonderful. Now, first of all, can I ask you, do you agree with our central, um, the premise of this discussion, that anti-trans sentiment is rising in the UK? Or do you think it's always been at a similar level, a similar level and is somehow being amplified more? No, I think things have obviously got a lot worse recently. Um, and it's, you know, it's a combination of initially, initially what it was kicked off by was a proposed reform of the Gender Recognition Act, Um, And it seemed like up till then we were sort of quiet enough and in our place enough for the detractors to kind of leave us alone, you know, being that we were such a tiny minority. But obviously when that came out and it started getting news traction and so on, I think these people, you know, much like any civil rights movement in history, 
when a, a certain group is felt to be getting a bit too big for their boots and possibly almost approaching the equality line, they, they're very quickly stomped back into place. And unfortunately, that's what started happening by some of the more trans radical feminist groups, uh, sorry, radical feminist groups, um, by some of the press. And obviously the press noticed very quickly that trans people make really, really good punching bags and really, really good clickbait. And much as we and our rights have been used and weaponized by governments and voters and polls and so on over the years, we are now being used by the media, I think really just to sell newspapers. And unfortunately, the the repercussions of that are that tr the trans community is under attack. It's interesting what you say about um, when when a minority group gets closer towards equality or makes great strides, they're pushed back in their place. Is it also about, um, you know, a lot of older gay men have said to me there wasn't so much homophobia around before the start of decriminalisation because people who didn't really talk about it, you didn't see any. Is it um, partly that trans people had so little visibility um and now there's something for people to think about and see and react to yeah i mean obviously you know the more you see us the more in one way it's very very positive and obviously our younger generation is able to see themselves rep represented out there and come out earlier and be themselves earlier and live authentic lives earlier but by the same token obviously not only does that terrify the adults because you know obviously these these kids are coming out now in their droves which shows that there are a lot more of us around than we ever thought before but i think you know any kind of visibility particularly on the on the i say the scale that we've seen we're still a tiny minority we're i think 0.1 of the population and 89 percent of people have never knowingly met anybody transgender but then you know you get laverne cox on the cover of time magazine you get old caitlin on the cover of vanity fair and all of a sudden we're everywhere and we're turning your children well can i just trying to <laughs> trying to get something positive out of it what if you look at the history of gay rights often when there's increased visibility there's a backlash that pushes us one step back but over a longer period of time it's actually definitely a movement in the right direction do you think that maybe what's happening with um the trans um community and this is a temporarily blip being pushed back but we're gonna come forward again it does, I mean, at the moment, things are worrying, and, and that is absolutely true across the board. I think we've got a government that's not necessarily terribly supportive in, in you know, it's in certain corners. I think we've got um, a lot of sway from the media. I think there's a lot of people who are now feeling empowered and emboldened to speak out and, and sort of fly their anti-trans, transphobic flag, which I think, you know, wouldn't be the case for any other minority. I can't really imagine anyone proudly saying yes you know i'm very anti-muslims or yes I'm, i mean obviously there's a lot of anti-semitism out there still as we've discussed last time but you know i think there are very few minorities that people feel safe to put the boot into publicly and unfortunately the trans community is very much one of the communities that people think hey ho today i'm going to go and talk to a newspaper about why i think trans women aren't really women and why i think trans kids shouldn't be allowed to transition even though i know nothing about it i think you know it's an important time to make my voice heard Okay, before I open this up to our panel, I would just love to ask you, I'd love to know what is, I mean, what is all this like to live through on a personal level? Because it's not just you, it's, you know, your wife is trans, your family is a queer family. What is this like? To live through recently things have been tough i won't lie you know previously i've always said oh we've had so much positivity and our documentary got vast amounts of positivity which was wonderful and we're still we screened in israel last week and in the netherlands and again lots of outpourings of love however online we have seen a lot more hate than we have seen previously you know we've had 
well, some awful things said, even about our daughter, which I won't even go into now because it's just too horrific. But I know that all of our friends within the trans community are attacked pretty much daily. Woe betide anyone who's trans and on Twitter, because it's almost like, you know, people think that it's it's okay to pile on. And if you're trans and you're a woman, if you're trans and you're of colour, even more so. I mean, some of the horrors that you see. So, yes, it is getting worse. It does feel quite scary at the moment. And and as I say, we we really need to kind of, you know, look at the fact that even our one of the biggest LGBT charities in the UK, in fact, the biggest LGBT charity in the UK, Stonewall, is now getting piled upon and attacked and losing a lot of its support because it's trans inclusive, which I mean, really must make you think, how on earth have we got here where we're in this place of such division? Right, well, how on earth we got here? That is um, a central question we want to try and answer. Alex, you are chomping at the bit. Can I just um, say something? So Jake mentioned the positive response to his documentary. And according to data from Stonewall and the British Social Attitudes Survey, most people, especially women in this country, are supportive of trans rights and even more don't want to be seen as transphobic in their views. So I'm not trying to... Um, say that what Jake said isn't true, absolutely. Um, but is there anything we can take for positive? Do you think this is a case of a very vocal minority who Jake has said are being emboldened, empowered to whip up fear? Yes, I do actually. And that definitely um, echoes in my experience as a trans woman. No one in my life, be they male, female, straight, gay, um, is transphobic and is transphobic to me and they have never been even before I came out um, and so you know my parents friends are all very much on board all of my family is very much on board so I do think it is a vocal minority that is you know that 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 is whipping up a lot of problems for the trans community and, and unfortunately are being listened to by parliamentarians. And can I just point out, people often when they listen to programmes like this or some people dismiss, oh, the London liberal media elite, you are from outside London. As yes, I'm from Wakefield. I'm a Waker gal. Um, yes, I'm from West Yorkshire. And um, uh, yeah, I mean, I am from a very privileged middle class background. Um, so, you know, I must say that and I am white and I am cis passing. So, you know, there are all these sort of layers of privilege that I do um, uh, benefit from. But at the same time, I just genuinely don't come across transphobic people in my day to day life. OK, um, Matthew, so you've spoken in the past about the influence the mainstream media can have in this country. You've talked about when lots of papers and news outlets with similar political leanings, sometimes the same owner, can band together to achieve their aims. Um, is there a danger that this is having an influence here and certain people are trying to start a culture war? Oh, yeah. I mean, for sure. I definitely think that that trans people are being used as a way to bash the left. I mean, it is very similar to the way it was in the 80s with gay people when, um, you know, the, the Sun and uh, lots of the kind of right wing tabloids were, were used to kind of gay people as a way to kind of attack the left to make it say that, you know, if you support the Labour Party, they just want to turn everybody gay. I mean, they kind of almost said that in the ads that they had out for the 87 election. So I think I definitely think it is true. And I, and I can certainly see an increase. In, and un, I mean, my God, why would you be on Twitter if you were trans? Because it's just so horrendous. I mean, I've said some really innocuous like things about my friend Paris Lees and had like the most incredible abuse, more abuse than I, I get about, about me being gay 
or even talking about climate change stuff, which I do get some abuse about. But you talk, say anything about supportive about trans people and th- there's these people kind of pile on and it is, it's very upsetting. But I do think, I, I'm so glad to hear Alex say that because I do think the, I, what the big difference is, I think in the 80s, the country was quite unpleasant. There was a lot of really nastiness. You know, the, the papers were very re- explicitly racist as well. And I think the, they they really took the temperature of the country. Then I think things are different now. I think people are more liberal now. I think, I think in my experience, when I talk to my mum and dad and I talk to the people where they live in a very kind of like small kind of village, I think people are just uh, I, I'm not thinking about this very much. I think they most people think live and let live and they just they're worried about their day to day lives. And, you know, my mum and dad, there's a there's a trans person where my mum and dad live and she has an OK time. You know, people help her, support her. Um, so I think, yeah, I'm not saying it's not bad. It, it clearly is really bad. And, it, and it's very upsetting to see it. It's very it's, and, and let's be honest as well. There are a lot of there are there are quite a lot of gay men who are joining in with this kind of pylon. And that's very upsetting to see. And it's really dangerous because when you're bashing one part of us, it doesn't take much for that next step on to include all of us. It's a they are, really are. Absolutely. I completely agree. And I don't want to avoid that. I want to, after the break, talk about transphobia within our community. But I'd like at the moment to, Jake, can I ask you, much of the negative sentiment we're talking about, it's expressed particularly against trans women. Um, For example, the debate some people get hysterical about, about access to bathrooms, toilets, public toilets. As a trans man, do you think there's a difference in the way in which trans men and women are treated? And if so, what is behind this? Or portrayed by certain people we're talking about trying to ignite a culture war? Yeah, I mean, you know, my wife Hannah and I talk about this all the time. She, because, you know, obviously she's trans as well. And she, you know, we know throughout history, trans women have always been visible, possibly because of their physicality, possibly because, you know, they were raised in a way that afforded them a voice that maybe people, you know, trans men were not possibly conditioned to have. You know, I know that Hannah's very outspoken and always has been. And I know that, you know, if you look back through history, it's always been trans women fighting at the forefront for their rights, for everyone's rights. In fact, you know, they really have kind of suffered the slings and arrows. And I think there's also, obviously, there's a, there's a tendency to fetishize trans women. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a tendency. I think people are fascinated with anyone perceived as male, obviously inaccurately so, but perceived as male who would relinquish that that, that male privilege and to sort of drop down. I mean, for, for me, obviously, people think that I'm just a woman who or a poor lesbian who's kind of, you know, so desperate to take a step up towards, you know, the patriarchy and so on and so forth that I've taken hormones and had lots of surgeries. And I'm, in fact, you know, trying, striving desperately to find my place in society that way. Whereas, you know, that that's kind of understandable, just like women who, you know, little kids who wear boys clothes when they little girls, you know, tomboys are sort of accepted, whereas the little boys who do it, it's not understood and they're mocked and they're ridiculed. I think there's a real fascination with any man, and I use quotation marks, who would decide to relinquish that privilege, whereas for me to do it, it seems normal. And I think just largely people don't really, people just aren't interested in trans guys. I mean, you see in the media, we very rarely feature on TV. We very rarely feature in in films. There's very rarely discourse around trans men. And then obviously, you know, with these, this sort of whole argument about trans women in, in women's spaces, that would obviously, that means that your your thinking is that trans women are not women, which of course we know that they are. But obviously if a trans woman isn't supposed to be in a woman's place or a space or a toilet than I am. And I kind of derail that argument because no woman wants me in their toilet. 
Can I just say, Jake has literally just, I feel like I talk about trans issues quite a lot. He's just said about five things I have never heard expressed so clearly and so insightfully in my life. I just want to quickly, um, before we take a break, Alex, I just want to ask you, um, Jake has brought up the whole issue of the patriarchy moving up or moving down um, by transitioning. What about the idea that we often see expressed that trans rights are incompatible with feminism? This is often expressed through the idea of the ideas of TERFs or, if any of our listeners don't know, trans exclusionary radical feminists. How much damage is this idea doing? Lots. It's absolute rubbish. I am a feminist. I am a trans woman. Everyone, every woman that I know, every man that I know is a feminist and is trans positive as well. It's just absolute rubbish. And it pits trans women against cis women unnecessarily because we experience the same issues on a lot of things. There is a lot of sexism that we both, um, that both sets of women um, are experiencing. Yes, there are slight diff- there are differences with women who were assigned female at birth and women who were assigned male at birth but at the end of the day we all are actually going for the same thing which is liberation it's being able to do what we want to do and uh for our femininity to not be a barrier to that. It's interesting though because Jake talked about having a downgrade. You know, if if we're in a patriarchal society and you're assigned male at birth, why would you downgrade to being a woman? So do you think so is is that why some trans exclusionary radical feminists think that you haven't experienced the same hardships as them? Yeah, I actually um disagree with you, Jake, on this one. Um <laughs> to be honest. Um so I don't think that I think obviously every every trans woman's story is different, but I don't think that trans women who are socialised male as children um, are actually experiencing a lot of benefits of patriarchy. Um, trans women, uh, well, I can talk about myself. I, for example, um, was you know socialised male, and so you would think would be you know more confident or more talkative etc i was a very feminine little gay boy and i'm sure that you know i'm looking at the both of you two here as well i'm sure you also experienced um you know some of those hardships and oh, those... I, th- I thought i was very straight oh passing. come on <laughs> come on that pull the other one but no you don't you know you don't experience the you know male privilege in that same way because you are feminine and that's the same for trans women if they are feminine just as gay men are feminine some gay men are feminine, um, then they're not also going to experience those benefits of male privilege. I am Matt Kane. This is my Sunday roast. We are talking about the rise in anti-trans sentiment in the UK and how it is now expressed so readily and intensely in certain quarters. So I would like to know, actually, we're talking about um, the UK. I've heard lots of trans friends of mine say the situation's worse here than it is in the US. And obviously this isn't my specialist area, but I see images of Trump supporters, the Proud Boys, all the problems they have with race over there. And I think, is it really the case that they have a more advanced approach to trans people or have they just not got there yet? Is it is it a visibility thing? What do you think, Jake? What's your opinion on the way things are in the States versus here? You know, things in the States, it's weird because there they're, are, you know, there are obviously some aspects of it which are much more advanced. I mean, you know, the, the you know, you talk about the, the left wing media being more 
tolerant and open and accepting. Um, and we know that the uh, editor of the, or the editors of The Guardian in the US actually did a sort of public call out to the editors of The Guardian here and said, what on earth are you doing? You know, this is not what we stand for. The transphobia, the free speech, the, you know, the platforming of these uh, turfs is just not what we stand for as a, as a publication. And so there are aspects of it certainly where it's better over there. But, you know, you've got to remember that they were under Trump for four years. And so I think, you know, with those people running the country for four years, obviously things got pretty bad. We saw trans military members literally losing their jobs pretty much overnight. We saw um, a lot of, uh, you know, legislation coming in at state level. We saw a lot of, you know, things passing through the, the Supreme Court around bathroom bills, around trans girls being able to, because it's always trans girls, it's always trans women, you know. It's always toilets to or bathrooms as they're called. I mean, everybody's obsessed. It's just, it is insane. So yes, in certain circles, it's better. And I think certainly under Biden and with Kamala Harris, it's going to hopefully get better. But bear in mind that their hands are tied in a lot of respects because of what Trump did over four years, which was pretty much batting down the hatches for the next 50 odd years. Okay, right, brilliant. Alex, so obviously when we have evidence of straight out transphobia, some of which Jake's just mentioned, there's no way we should engage with our adversaries. But what do we do when there's ignorance? Should we try to educate? Yes, I think I think we should. And, you know, that's part of what I do in my job. And with the She Said, They Said podcast as well, I want people to say the stupid things to me because I know who I am and I know that I'm not going to get that upset about it. And I know that I'm going to be able to speak in a way that I think you will understand and so that you won't say those things to someone where it actually really, really matters. You know, I'm, I'd am i much rather someone say something stupid to me um, simply because I know how to handle it and I know, yeah, how, how I can respond. Um, so I think it is important to educate when you can and when you feel able to, but it is not the job of trans people to educate. That's not why we're here. We're here to enjoy our lives the same as everyone else. And it's something that I enjoy doing, so I don't mind doing it. Um, but, uh, but, but yeah, it's not our only MO here. Okay, so Toddy, you and I are both cisgender. Let's talk about kind of ignorance and the need for education. Um, I think a lot of people who aren't trans are frightened sometimes of getting things wrong. So it's interesting what Alex says. She wants them to get them wrong with her so she can put them right. I I think, so when we grew up, actually, Jake, um, you're younger than me, but when we grew up, people used to talk about born in the wrong body. I'm doing inverted commas here. Sex swap. They used to say transsexual. And um, obviously that's horrifically reductive. And it's great that we've moved away from that. But for some people who don't know much about sex and gender, it was quite easy for them to get their heads around born in the wrong body. Do you think, Toddy, do you, there's, there's just a lot of misunderstanding and some of these concepts are quite academic and they're actually quite difficult for people to get their head around. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean, I find it quite hard to keep on top of kind of this term, that term, the other term, and the theory, and this theory, and what does this person think? What does this? I tend to think I just will listen to trans people, non-binary people. They are who they say they are, and that's it. And let's all go and have some biscuits. You but it's I mean? interesting. But it's interesting what um, Jake said that um, eighty something percent of people in this country have never met a trans person or knowingly met a trans person. Mm. I've had people come up to me as a gay person and ask for help. I've had people ask me what is the difference between sex and gender. 
I have had, I was at a bar mitzvah in South Africa last year and a couple came up to me, an elderly religious Jewish couple whose daughter had just come out as gender fluid and they came to me and they said, we don't know what it means. Will you help us? What does it mean? And um, what I'm trying to... Well, I think that's a wonderfully positive thing that people yes. would say that because yes. in the past, I think you go from a place of people being really homophobic and transphobic. Then you go to a place more recently where it was just silence. We just won't talk about it. I think it's a really great thing that people will say, what does this mean? What does that mean? Because mm. the in- if the, it's about the intention, isn't it? If the intention is good and the intention is to be helpful, I think that's a really wonderful thing. You know what's really bizarre? That when I was... Um, uh, younger and a student I was working at a cinema in South London and one day um, a management meeting we used to have these meetings there, uh, on a Wednesday morning or something that would all be called in once a month and they told us that there was a trans man coming to work at the cinema and were very explicit about the fact that you will treat this person well you will treat this person with respect we will not ha- we will not tolerate any nastiness and negativity and I often get quite emotional when I talk about that because that was like 1992 or 1993 and oh, it was an amazing, yeah. it was amazing. And they're literally, once you, I think that is so important, having discussions like that when you set boundaries, the same with young people, talking to people about all of these different issues. If you set boundaries, people are generally much more relaxed and it gets rid of lots of the problems. And that person had a great time working there. Everybody was supportive and was he was just one of the team and it was great. It was really good. Um, Jake, so this idea of um, the kind of some of complicated concepts academically for some people to get their heads around, do you think it would be helpful if we separate the academic completely and the theoretical from the lived experiences of individual trans people, their human emotions? I think that um, most human beings should be able to um, connect on that level, even if they can't get their head around concepts they think are difficult. Well, of course. I mean, and that's also just basic kindness and basic, you know, respect that everyone should have for other human beings, regardless of their lived experience. I mean, you know, when I, I still to 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 a to a degree, especially when I'm talking to younger people who, you know, I go into schools and talk and so on, I will say I feel like I was born in a body that didn't match my head. You know, when these people all, all say, "Oh, but you know, it's what's between your legs that defines you," I feel really bad for those people <laughs> that, that that are defined by what's between their legs because I am defined by who I am, and I would, you know, say that's in my head, in my brain, and that's what makes me not what's between my legs, and it's this very um, very basic way of speaking. And then they start throwing around science and biology. And as we all know, if we've read anything, even scientifically, gender and sexuality are not binary. Nothing about it is binary. And, you know, it does feel that there are certain people that regardless of how you, you know, how many people of how many of the trans community tell their stories or try and help them understand, they will dig their little heels in and will keep throwing around nonsense that means nothing that they clearly haven't read up on. Every medical association pretty much across the globe recognizes that being transgender is a genuine medical condition. And yet these people will still keep batting on about science and what's between your legs. And I think for those people really, let's all just move on and and wait for them to die out. And for those who are willing to learn, and obviously it is through, you know, hearing our lived experiences and Alex's lived experience and Paris's lived experience and Monroe and all all, all trans women that I'm listening because there are no other trans men. <laughs> yes. Yeah, but do we have to wait that long till all these people have died out? Some of them are young. You're talking about going into schools and seeing some of these people. Is there nothing else we can do? Can we not, when they quote science, do we need to get better at quoting science back at them, actually? Um, well, and I'm saying we, obviously you do that. When I say we, I basically mean me. 
Um, do we need to kind of know our science better to be able to hit them back with it? I don't think we should even be, be worrying about what we know and that we should know our science and we should get our notebooks out and start. I think these people really just need to, you know, again, with any any sort of kind of bigotry, it's not upon us. As Alex said, it is not our responsibility to know our science and to be able to kind of talk these people around. There does need to be a shift. Luckily, when you look at all the kind of statistics of, you know, how kids are identifying these days, I think it is something like 50% of all 18, uh, 16 to 24s are now identifying somewhere along that queer LGBTQ UIA spectrum, which obviously for the future holds us in good stead because all of those 50% will have friends who will accept because, oh, well, Bobby's trans and, you know, Sunita's non-binary and so-and-so's gay. And hopefully that will permeate within our society, meaning that the next generation teach their kids that and so on. But I certainly don't think it's up to us to kind of go around with our science books, you know, quoting. Okay, fantastic. Right, I want to confront an issue that came up before the break, which is transphobia within the LGBTQ plus community. Um, Alex, do we, if we're talking about how to get rid of transphobia, um, do we need to take a different approach here? Or, you know, what's going, is it, is it even more hurtful to you as a queer person when it comes from within our community? And how can we get rid of it? I mean, I don't want to victim blame because I think that LGBT people are the same victims of um, homophobia and biphobia as trans people are victims of transphobia. And I think that they are responding in a way that is transphobic because they want acceptance from cis straight society. And so they are conforming to that saying you know we're not like them it's separate um this is something completely different which you know gender and sexuality are different um but the issues are the same it's like what i said about feminism really you know it's this sort of anti-feminine anti you know uh, it's all pro-societal norms in inverted commas it's very sort of conservative with a small c traditional and so we are all battling against the same thing and just because that gay men have same-sex marriage doesn't mean that you know that, that they don't experience homophobia and that they won't in the future you know and they need to be aware of that as well can, can i just can i just interject very quickly because obviously alex is totally right that you know it does there are there are equally trans people who will also you know, will be almost guns for hire and who will go onto the to the sofas of breakfast TV and speak out and say silly things like, oh, of course, you know, we're not really women. And well, of course, you know, we're, we're a, you know, a different gender. And of course, the non-binary is not a thing. And, you know, these again, it does kind of smack of a collaborator during the war, thinking that if they try hard enough to kind of, you know, garner that favor, that they will be let off and get a free pass. And unfortunately, anybody who's willing to speak out against someone lower than them or of a smaller minority and punch down in that manner as matt said earlier they are eventually it's going to turn around and bite them because once the smaller minorities are wiped out be aware and be ready that they will come for you next oh right so um how to how to bring about change how to battle against this what can we do alex and jake um what can i do besides learning some of my science um <laughs> what can we do to um to combat this anti-trans sentiment is there anything beyond the obvious that we need to know about that you would like to tell any cis members of the lgbtq plus community listening now how can we be your allies as effectively as possible. Let's have Alex first. 
I think what you're doing now, you're platforming trans people on your show that is in on Virgin Radio Pride and, you know, has a has a big audience. And, you know, you're listening to people that are trans that have these experiences. And simply by doing that, you are humanizing it. Because you know, when you read a a, a terrible uh, headline that is about the trans spectre in the single sex space that is going to be a predator, um, there are people that are behind that. And people like me, like Jake, um, can just say, no, that's absolutely rubbish. That's never happened. Um, and it's, and it's you know, it's just not a thing. And we can humanise that story, put across ourselves and show that we are not the trans spectre, that we are just people like you guys fantastic thank you very much alex jake you're brilliant i want to give you the last word what can our listeners do to be better allies to to trans people just remember that you know as alex said we are all victims and we are all bashed and beaten and bullied and vilified by the same people if you look at the reporting that's happening about trans people today it is the same reporting that was happening about gay men in the 80s and about le- well lesbians again like trans men don't don't ever feature as queen victoria said they don't really exist but you know we know that the reporting is very very similar and as i've said a thousand times before when it was, you know, 100 years ago, it wasn't about whether black people should be in white bathrooms, just as, you know, 50 years ago, it wasn't about whether gay men should be allowed in toilets with nice, normal, heterosexual men. And it's not now an argument, realistically, about trans women in women's toilets. It is always just about squashing down minorities, keeping us in our places. And we all need to just remember that when push comes to shove, they will come for all of us and that we are stronger together. And, you know, that we're all just people. Jake, thank you very much. Rosing words to end. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Lots of love. I am Matt Kane. You are listening to my Sunday Roast. I am thrilled to be with my panellist, Alex Woolhouse. Hi, gorgeous. Hello, equally gorgeous, Alex. So tell us, last time you were on the show, we spoke about your work for the trans charity Mermaids. But since then, I've noticed that you've set up a name change clinic for service users to get free advice on changing their name. Can you tell us a little more about that? I've never heard of this kind of thing before. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's actually the first uh, one in the country. But this is in collaboration with an international law firm called Latham and Watkins. And what we do is we hold a Zoom clinic um, for our service users to answer any of their questions about changing their name. And so um, it's actually a really simple process in the UK. And so this is a way for uh, children and young people to change their names legally and be, you know, use their name as they would normally. Do you give them any advice about the kind of name they should pick? I imagine if you're quite young, people always talk about kind of getting a bad tattoo when they're young. You know, we often have um, our taste mature over time. What do you do if you get a young person who's choosing a name and you think, you're going to regret that in 20 years. Oh, I know, I know. It's it's nothing to do with me. That's their conversation with their parents or whoever. No, um, yeah, there are there are a, a wide variety of names, definitely. Um, but but, there's a, but there's a, it's interesting for those, because, you know, those of us outside the trans community, um, there's, we hear so many things talked about over and over and over again, whether it's genitals or public toilets. Um, I'm fascinated by the idea of, picking a new name for yourself as an adult. I know. I mean, I can imagine all the emotions bound up with that and the significance of, you know, when you chose your name, um, you know, that must have been an emotional 
experience for you. Yeah, it absolutely was. And uh, it was a, um, a real moment for me, definitely. I mean, I actually, I, I just used the feminine version of my name. Um, oh, right. But okay. my middle name, so my middle name um, was my dad's name because... Uh, I was the eldest, and so it was tradition in our family that if you are the eldest, your middle name is your dad's name. So I got my dad's name, but I wanted a way to feminize it, but incorporate it still um, in and and you know not you know not say goodbye to his name and continue that tradition. So what's your middle name? It's Nell. Which is kind of weird, I think. N E double L. N E double L, yeah. Alexandra Nell, yeah. I mean, and Nell Gwynn was the first female actress in the UK. So, and, you know, also the mistress of Charles II. But, you know, forget that second bit. I think it's pretty cool. But I should have said Louise because that would have been like, you know, every cis girl in the world. (laughs) No, that doesn't fit me. I think Alex Nell is great. Yeah, it's cute, isn't it? Was your dad's name Neil? Yes, well, it's. Still is actually it's still oh, his God, name Neil. Yes, yeah. lovely, um, gorgeous. But yeah, Nell. I think I, it was always it was always kind of too butch for me because it would always be like Alex Neil Wallhouse. Like it just like didn't really fit. Whereas like now I think my name fits. But yeah, it's really great to be able to do that for other people because yeah, it's so nice. I remember you know when I did it. There's been two like points in my transition that I felt. Um, that's kind of like warm and fuzzy euphoria feeling. And that was when I changed my name and then when I took took my first hormone pill. It literally felt like an almost religious experience and I'm not a religious person, but it generally did. Spiritual experience. Spiritual, yeah. It was a spiritual experience. Like I... I it was both things were really special. I remember when I took my this is so pathetic. When I took my first hormone pill, I put on um I am woman. And I love I, it. I love it. <laughs> I was in my bedroom in Brixton. I was like I waited for the chorus and I was like I am woman, hear me raw and I was like I took the pill and I was like oh. Do you think in all seriousness we need to do more to kind of turn some of these steps of the process into positive, celebratory, joyful experiences. When you think about, um, you know, me and Matthew, gay men coming out, there's so much about the fear and will they accept us and this, that and the other. Um, We don't have the equivalent of the moment of choosing our name, an act of self-realisation, self-actualisation. That could be an absolutely joyous, amazing moment that we other people could celebrate in. I agree. And there are so many of these moments. You know, the first time you're called your, your real name, the first time you're called my, you know, you hear my daughter instead of my son, like the first time you buy a pair of heels and, and you know, there are all these amazing, joyful experiences that just aren't really spoken about because you just hear about the awful stuff. The bad stuff. The bad stuff, which, you know, obviously it's important to talk about the bad stuff. But as well, you know, my life's great. I'm I'm fine. And actually, we're talking a lot about names and things, but since we last had you on the show, you've done lots of exciting things in your life. I see you've ventured into TikTok. (laughs) I can't believe you weren't on it before. I know, because I knew that if I got it, I would not be able to get off it. So, but yeah, we had a TikTok artist on the She Said They Said podcast this week. So I got it in order for me to be able to speak with them properly. And now I'm absolutely obsessed with it. I love TikTok. Everyone follow me, Alex W. Oh, 
W-A-Y. <laughs> and you've got to get that name. Oh, get that name in your head. Absolutely. Um, and you've also started doing voiceover work for the BBC. I have. Streaming now on iPlayer. That's literally me. It's so funny. Every time I hear it, I'm like, that's ridiculous, Alex. Um, and yeah, it's really fun because I just get messages from guys from school that are like, did I just hear you on Radio 1? Yes, you did, Nick. <laughs> Okay. How do you like me now? <laughs> right, I've got to ask you one more question before we wrap up. We talked about Love Island last time. You were obsessed with it. Uh-huh. Um, what did you think of the rest of the series? I stopped watching it. It gets boring. It gets boring. No, no, no. Like, two episodes before the end, it gets really boring because they're all loved up and it's just watching the dates and just watching the moon over each other. And then the final is like four hours long and nobody cares. So I stopped watching it. I watched it until it was fun until the family come in and yeah I'm obsessed with Chloe I want to be her best friend everyone says we look like each other so yeah um, I, 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 w- I will miss it every 9pm I'm like what do I do now I watch the killing that's what I do I watch the killing 2011 called they want their zeitgeist back okay I'm Matt Kane. you're listening to my Sunday Roast and coming up when we look down on countries for having lower levels of acceptance of LGBTQ plus people than we do, can we sometimes be guilty of cultural arrogance? Our fabulous panel are sticking around and we'll also be joined by activist and former asylum seeker Adaronke Apata. My delightful panel, Matthew Todd and Alex Wallhouse, are still with me. Hello. And now we're going to be talking about cultural arrogance, whether we are guilty of it. So at the start of the Sunday Roast back in June, we spoke about the ethical dilemma around going on holiday to countries which discriminate against LGBTQ plus people. Since then, we've also spoken about what we can all do as activists to change the rights for queer people living in these countries. But the question we're asking now is when we look down on countries with low levels of acceptance for LGBTQ plus people, can we sometimes be guilty of cultural arrogance? And is it dangerous to try and impose our liberal views on these countries? I am thrilled that we are joined by Adaronke. Apata. She's a Nigerian LGBTQ activist, feminist and human rights advocate, as well as a former asylum seeker. Adaronke received widespread media attention when her asylum case was rejected because courts did not believe she was a lesbian and she was forced to prove it. She now runs the African Rainbow Family Charity, which provides support for LGBTQ plus people of African heritage. Adaronke, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me. Could you start? Could you start by telling us um, just the kinds of attitudes that existed in your home country towards LGBTQ plus people? Well, it's a, a very toxic environment where the society feels that LGBTIQ people are not human and also that they are, we are kind of possessed by evil spirit to the extent that if you happen to come from a Christian home, the first thing that they will be recommending or prescribing for you will be to take you to the church 
to have what they call deliverance. That's exorcism. So it's not an environment for an LGBTIQ person to survive or to flourish or to be comfortable in their skin to be who they are. And did, I mean, you obviously grew up around these attitudes. Did you also, in terms of how they're impacted on your life, did you experience this kind of thing, exorcism? Is that why you had to get out? I did experience exorcism at some point. And usually I would hear teaching in the churches about how God hates homosexuals, how homosexuality, it's sinful, it's not acceptable by God, and linking it to what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. Without them reading the Bible to know that it was because of lack of hospitality, that was what caused the fall of Sodom and Gomorrah. It has nothing to do with being an homosexual person. And just just how bad did things get for you in Nigeria? Why Did you actually fear for your life at any point? I did fear for my life. That was when I flee. Because of having to listen to all these kind of things and the possibility of me being killed or being jailed as a result of being a lesbian was quite rife and it was stuck right there for me. And I just could not bear having to live in that kind of environment. That was why I flew. Okay, I'm going to bring the panellists in in a minute, but how, could you tell us how much better has your life been since you moved to the UK? Well, I would say in terms of freedom, of being able to express myself, to be comfortable in my skin, to proudly say openly that I'm a lesbian, that has been some kind of a relief for me. But in terms of the stress of having to go through the asylum system, I'm still kind of recovering for, from, from the effect of those period. In fact, 13 years. So I'm not fully recovered from that. But the fact that I could say to myself or on the street or anywhere, just identify as who I am, that's quite uh, encouraging. But it's interesting that we put LGBTQ plus asylum seekers through, we subject them to a trauma. I So I was, um, from your experience, so I was going to ask, is it too simplistic to say this is a good people for a good country for queer people, and places like Nigeria are bad. Is that that's too simplistic, presumably, from your experience? <laughs> I would say so because it's it's more than just saying um, the UK is uh, good for LGBTIQ people and Nigeria is bad for LGBTIQ people. Okay, so can I ask Alex now, when we denounce, criticise the backwards attitudes in inverted commas of certain foreign countries towards queer people, how is this different from the empire builders of the past calling the natives barbaric in inverted commas and savages? You know, do you think it's, is there a parallel here? I think it's really complicated. I think a lot of this homophobia, um, that has just been described um, 
has come from the West. It's come from Christian missionaries um, that have gone over to Africa to, quote unquote, civilise and um, to uh, spread the, the word of um, the Bible. And and so the sort of the homophobia has come with that. Um, absolutely. I think now um, it's I, I think it's too simplistic to say, you know, oh, it's it's exactly the same you know, now we're imposing our Western ideals on a society that doesn't want them. Um, you know, we brought over those homophobic ideals. And now I think it's important that we spread the word of, you know, uh, liberalism and of acceptance and love, because this isn't just, you know, um, uh, this, this isn't just uh, the treatment of LGBT people. This is the criminalization and kill and and lawful killing of lgbt people in these countries it's about it's literally life and death um and i think it's important that um that as our society has developed um that we also you know look back at the societies that we have impacted with our western values it's interesting, isn't it, Matthew? Because, you know, um, as Alex says, you know, we exported a lot of homophobia and a lot of um, anti-LGBT laws to former colonies. You know, is there a danger of us falling into us and them? Um, because it's more complicated, isn't it? And not just what happened in the past with colonialism, but there's evidence of legislation passing in countries like Uganda with the assistance and the funding of evangelical Christian groups from the US. You know, the Kill the Gays bill that passed in 2014. I know it was later repealed on a technicality, but that was proven to have been funded and sponsored by American groups. So is it too simplistic to talk about us and them? Um, yeah, I think I think you know the most issues. You know, it, you know you can't just talk about them in, in a very simplistic way. But it's I think it's true what Alex said. It is very very complicated, and I'm I'm certainly not an expert on it. Um, so I can't go bowling in. I mean, I remember when I was editor of Attitude, and we used to talk to sort of different groups in different countries. And I remember one group was very vehemently saying it was a British group. It might have even been Stonewall. I can't actually remember saying, you know, you can't dictate, you can't say this, you can't say that, you can't go in campaigning for change. What you need to do is go, you know, work with activists on the ground in, that, in those countries, which is what I would say is a, is a positive thing. That's probably what we would do editorially, and was what what people would do here. But then at other times, you'd actually meet people from different countries who would say no. No, uh, we're we're dying here. Can you please shout and scream and can you make a fuss because it's not on and it's life and death for us. And I think there there, there can be in you know, in the liberal West, you know, in the kind of place we're in. I think there can be a tendency for us to kind of be really apologetic about it, about you know, saying there's some really terrible things happening in some of these countries. And I think it's 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 overwhelming. I, the most important thing I think is to hear from people like we've just heard just now from Adaronka. You know, hearing her story and hearing letting as with you know with everyone trans gay this that the other it's about people telling their story and telling us what it's like i mean as someone in in my book um pride it talks about how the church in uh, i think it was nigeria that this person came from um that if you would go for a sexual health screening or or, or test the church would then re- report you to to the state or whatever or the hospital would report you to the state and the, the, you know it's, there's a, it's a really difficult bleak situation in many of these countries well it's also complicated isn't it alex because you've got cultural values human rights and you've got religion in the mix and you know 
you we are constantly told we have to respect other cultural values we have to respect religious beliefs and you get to a point when you see young gay men being thrown off buildings in the name of Islam, however much of a corruption of Islam's values we think this represents. And we feel that we're not able to call it out. Some people feel like they're going to get accused of Islamophobia and it's all so complicated. And do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I do. And I don't think it's Islamophobic. I don't think it's, you know, anti-Semitic or or any um, sort of religious intolerance to criticise certain practices that... Uh, disproportionately impact in a negative way on minority groups, women. You know, there are lots of parts of of lot of all major religions that um, negatively impact women and LGBT people. They're not just Western, um, in inverted commas, Western religions. They are all religions um, and a lot of, of practices as well. And so, you know, just as in this country at the moment, conversion therapy isn't banned it's not illegal and so you know we also have to look closer to home as well when we are you know preaching these ideals of you know um of of tolerance and of acceptance of lgbt people um you know we also have to look at home okay i want to come back to that later can i ask you adaron k um if local politicians in a country say that anti-gay anti-lesbian attitudes are their cultural values are we is it okay for us as foreigners to criticize them well i'm not gonna say a yes or no because uh, it is more complicated than that the idea of homophobia for, for whoever now wants to begin to claim that it is what they want to embrace or that is what it is in their country is wrong. Because from the beginning, I just want to reiterate the fact that if there was nothing like being an LGBTIQ person in my country, for instance, Nigeria, before civilization came, before we were colonized, there wouldn't be a law that was passed in my country by the British um, masters then. There wouldn't be any law against it. So it meant that it, it wasn't on African to be an, uh, an homosexual person. Well, it's complicated, isn't it? Because you've got us bringing in the homophobic legislation. Then yeah. you've got local politicians saying um, gayness is un-African. And yes, that the, the, that is a Western import. That that's a foreign import. It is because it does kind of sit with their own corruption. They can use us now as scapegoats for their own um, inadequacies of having to run the government. Do not forget that when leaders want to make the citizens look away from their own inadequacies, they just have to create something and send it to people to start fighting over. That's and interesting. That's exactly, yeah, that's exactly what this African country leaders are doing. They're okay, we cannot run this country as well, but let us keep good people that are LGBTIQ people because the Western world told us that it is wrong. So we'll just stand with that and say it is wrong when they know that it is not wrong. Well, this is something that's come up on our show a few times. Matthew Todd was talking about um, 
with climate change causing all these problems, minorities are going to be under threat because people will be looking for a scapegoat. Jake Graff has also said we need, all minorities need to come together because if they're coming for one, they'll come for all of us. People need an excuse, somebody to blame. You know, um, so do you think, so actually something one of our panellists said before, do you think having come here and seen this freedom, we're talking about whether or not we can criticise values in other countries, but can we also, can we actually feel proud of how much better our country is and attitudes are here? I know that our ancestors imported homophobic law, exported homophobic laws, but um, can, can people feel proud of how much better things are in this country? We should all celebrate the fact that it is better. Do not forget how long it took in the UK also. I'm sure you know this history more than I do for LGBTIQ law to be repealed. It took quite a while. So the fact that the freedom is here now, we should all celebrate it. And that's what I'm looking forward to in my country, Nigeria, that the laws will be repealed some days and people will begin to change their own attitude towards embracing people who are like me. I am Matt Kane. You're listening to my Sunday Roast and we are talking about whether we in the UK are sometimes guilty of cultural arrogance when we look down on other countries and their lower levels of acceptance of queer people. I have got a few comments from listeners. Let's read out. Rachel on Twitter says, yes, we are guilty of that. Because if we colonise that country, then it's us who introduce the concept of homophobia. This has already come up. Taking away people's culture and beating them into submission and insisting they take on our religion, rules and culture. And finally, passing judgment on that 200 years later. Kirsty on Instagram, let's have another. She says, I don't think, I don't necessarily think it's cultural arrogance, but more cultural ignorance. When you come from a country where the LGBTQ plus community have a more progressive acceptance, it's hard to understand the world of people in countries where no acceptance is allowed. Like anything you don't experience or aren't exposed to, you are going to be ignorant of it. Matthew Todd, do you think when people say it's bad of us to be passing judgment on countries 200 years after we took over our homophobic legislation. I understand that. Part of me also thinks they've had 200 years to repeal it. It's not a get out of jail free card. It's not, it doesn't let them off the hook. The fact that we took the homophobia there in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think, you know, the British colonial past is you know, terrible in, you know, lots of ways, but it wasn't every single country and not every single country where it's incredibly homophobic, where it's illegal to be gay, where they, you know, will put you in prison or kill you or whatever. They're not all countries that that, that we had in, involvement with. I mean, it is, it is so complicated. I mean, these are questions that people will discuss and have very heated debates and discussions about. And I, I don't know the answers. I do find it very hard to sit back and just look at any country where people are being treated really, really terribly and just go, oh, that's fine. Or oh, there's a reason for it. Or oh, there's this or there's that. I don't know. Is that wrong of me? Is that right of me? I don't know. It's 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 really, really hard. But I think for all of us, you know, seeing people really suffering and hearing such terrible stories like the ones we've just heard, it's hard to just go, oh, that's OK, because what are those governments doing? How what what is happening there to change that? And 
I do understand also the difficulty of going in and saying, well, actually, you know, uh, being gay is fine and you need to change that. And, you you know, everything needs to change. We're telling you what to do. I mean, I can understand that's really difficult, too. I think these are very, very, I mean, they are, they're the most difficult questions that we face in the world, aren't they? Well, and also if, if some of these countries or the governments of these countries are portraying gayness and queerness as a Western import, we only play into their hands if we pile on in and say, you've got to change because we know better than you. You know, it's going to have the opposite effect of what we want, isn't it? Yeah, you know what, actually, I was just thinking that sometimes one of the kind of benefits of the kind of corporate interaction with you know, the LGBT community in the West is Virgin Holidays, funnily enough, we're Virgin, I'm not just saying because we, we're with Virgin, but Virgin Holidays supported the Attitude uh, Awards, which I think they still do. And they made a commitment to going to countries that they had financial uh, engagements with and, you know, flew to and had holiday packages with to say to them, you need to change these laws, you need to be more progressive, you need to change. And I think... I'm all for, you know, talking about the problems of corporate interaction with pride and LGBT culture and so on. But I think sometimes there are there can be positives. And I think we should, we yeah. should think about that. Absolutely. Adironke, can I ask you, according to a 29 Pew, 2019 Pew survey... Wealthier countries tend to be more accepting of homosexuality, regardless of whether they are Asian or Western. So is this about the split between wealth and poverty rather than anything else, do you think? We've mentioned culture, we've mentioned religion. Is it about wealth and poverty, do you think? Well, I would say, Matt, that don't forget that when people run away from their countries, this is brain drain. So the economic values that people would have added to their countries have been exported to the countries that we call LGBTIQ friendly countries. And people will begin to make those economies grow. And when it comes to being rich and being poor, a poor man is an angry man. A poor, a poor man is an angry man. Yes. Therefore, the Africans or those countries that are poor that are now kind of persecuting us because they are poor, they are angry. And I've said it before, they're looking for scapegoats. So that tells you how much disparity is between the rich and the poor. Okay, that's fine. So if they would allow us to stay in our countries, then there will be more wealth. That's fantastic. Right. Talking about immigration, talking about what we've exported to countries, whether it's gayness or homophobic legislation. Um, let's talk about things coming into this country now. So, Alex, um, when we have waves of immigration from countries where homophobia is prevalent, sometimes this can be brought into our country. Do you think if a queer person is beaten up here, um, and the perpetrators from a different culture, for example, should we bring this up, confront it, examine it? Yes, I think it needs to be examined. It doesn't excuse it. Um, you know, we have a, a legal system in this country that protects people of uh, that are LGBT um, under the Equality Act from being discriminated against. And, and you know, no one ha can be assaulted or, um, or or beaten up or anything like that. And, and those laws apply to everyone, regardless of their immigration status. Um, it explains it, perhaps. It does not excuse it. Um, and, uh, yeah, but I, I, I don't, I, I, I think it's kind of, 
um, their immigration status is kind of irrelevant. Um, any violence against people, including LGBT people, is abhorrent. Absolutely. Um, Adoronke, so you're talking about, the, you've talked about the dra- brain drain, you've touched on your experiences coming over as an asylum seeker. Can you tell us about, so this idea of importing homophobia with economic migrants, you know, there's a lot of talk about a citizenship test. Um, is this about us imposing our values on other people? Or is it problematic at all? Or is it just about saying this is, in this country, we, we don't want things like homophobia? Do you know what well, I mean? It's quite complicated, it, isn't it? It is complicated. In as much as it is good to let people who come into the UK to learn about the values of the UK and then test them on it, it is good. There's nothing wrong with that. But at the same time, you want to look at even some of the questions that they ask these people. Some people in the UK who are citizens or who were born here cannot even answer one of the questions. Do they ask, um, can I just, so I've never done a citizenship test, I was born here, but do, do they ask about, like, how you feel about queer people? What what kind of things do they ask? Or is it about what date Henry VIII was born in Kings and Queens? <laughs> I've not done one myself, but from the people that I've done, which I've heard, I'm not sure if they've said there's anything around queerness or anything, but I know that they've asked questions around historical things like the queen, the kings, and all of those. See, it doesn't bother me if doesn't bother me in the slightest if um, an immigrant doesn't know when the queen was born, whereas if they have extremely homophobic views, that bothers me. I think they're asking the wrong questions on this test. Matthew, Todd, tell us, um, obviously, when we start talking about, you know, testing people to see that they have our cultural values, it can become problematic. Who gets to decide or classify what are a country's cultural values? Does a government ever have the backing of all the people? Or is it just majority values that prevail at any one time until they change? Oh my goodness. I mean, this is such a huge and controversial topic, isn't it? We never, they talk about this in the mainstream about, you know, the British cultural values. Everyone starts kicking off on Twitter and they're saying, oh, it's racism and it's hateful and it's this and it's that and it's the other. I do think there are cultural values here. I do think there are things, you know, like we talk about having a cup of tea or queuing or Barbara Windsor. I mean, I do think there are there are things. And I, I do think it's important as well to acknowledge, you know, the positives. I, I, I think I've been guilty of this as being someone on the left, that sometimes we can get into a place where we're very down on this country and everything's terrible and everything's awful. And there are lots of really awful things. Of course there are. But there are also some, some great things. And, you know, when you see Pride and you see, you go to Pride and you see people, you know, being who they are and people from other countries where they can't be who they are, I, that is an amazing thing. And I've, I've met many people over the years, you know, when I was editing Attitude, who'd say to me, when I might be saying, oh, I don't like Pride, and it's too sexual, and it's too this, or it's too that, or it's too com- too corporate. And they'd say, no, we see that from where we are, and we would absolutely, it's my dream of being on that march. And I think, yeah, we need to we need to celebrate all the positives. I, d- I don't know what the line is and what you know what what we should be saying to people. What do you think about this? What do you think about that? But tolerance is really important. It is really important for, for everyone in this country. We need to tolerate each other. You know, be it gender, race, sexuality, whatever it may be. So I think that is an important value. Alex, the key to tolerance or to increasing tolerance is education. Um, that's also the key to winning. You know, to um, winning over people from different cultures who come to live here. Um, But at what point do you think education 
tips over into a cultural brainwashing or a dismissal of other sometimes very different cultural values? I think um, values such as tolerance, freedom of speech, freedom of expression, um, protection from discrimination are and should be universal. I don't think they are. um, uh, They shouldn't be in this country uh, controversial and they are things that are on the citizenship test and, and, you know, things that people should subscribe to. Um, and, you know, it, these the, all of these things are not, you need to think a certain thing to have freedom of expression. They are whatever you think, that is okay, but we, we can criticise it or we can protect it. Um, so, yeah, things like freedom of speech or expression, that's not brainwashing, that's actually protection from brainwashing. Well, it's interesting though, isn't it, as well, because... Um... You know, you mentioned earlier whether whether um, the things that are still wrong here, like we've still not banned conversion therapy, for example. Do you think we've done enough to hold up LGBTQ plus equality as a Western, as a British value? Have we done enough? No, I don't think we have. I think there's a lot of things that we need. We need non-binary recognition in this country. We need proper trans uh, healthcare funded for trans people. Um, those are the two things that have sprung to mind. Um, but but no, that you know we are behind some countries. Um, but I think again. As Adaronke says, this is comparatively, we have more freedom and we have protection and the ability to criticise those that criticise us. Okay, I'm going to come back to Adaronke for the last word in a minute. But Toddy, so on an earlier episode, we talked about anti-LGBTQ plus legislation in certain countries that are trying to attract queer travellers. And somebody pointed out that there's a lot of homophobia in certain parts of the US, for example, and still sometimes legislation against queer people. Do you think... We don't discuss this because we see Americans as being similar to us. They're the same racially. And we can look at um, Africans or Eastern Europeans and um, think they're different and we're better than them. I mean, maybe some people do think that. I mean, America is, you know, pretty progressive on the whole. Yes, there are problems. Yes, there are, you know, states where things are bad. And you know, obviously having Trump in was literally a nightmare beyond expression, which none of us have gotten over yet. Um, but yeah, I don't I don't know. I mean, it depends which countries you, you, you're talking about. I mean, there are I, I've got friends, you know, who, who go to Dubai and I feel really nervous about about going there I feel like I, I, would I feel safe I and, and also you, and also would I be like you know giving money to a country that that is not uh you know on board with who I am I I, I don't feel good about that I mean I, I'm not someone who I guess I grew up in a generation I'm not someone who's massively uh widely traveled because I, I guess I remember a generation where even going to a bed and breakfast in the UK you'd be thinking oh my god you know I, I was I was turned away actually from a B&B years ago when in Brighton with a bunch of friends we were just out and we were going to go home and we didn't we missed the train and we tried to find a and b and because we were gay they turned us away so you know I'm of that generation so I guess I've always been like I can only go to countries where I know it's going to be safe so there's you know, not many of those yeah, but I mean, I guess, you know, like countries like Spain and yeah, being yeah, really yeah, kind of yeah. bland about it. I mean, I'm not being saying Sp- Spain's bland, but just going to you know, France and Spain and this place and that place and being very self-conscious about how I'm presenting in a hotel or whatever it may be. So, OK, um, thank you very much for that. So, Adironke, we want to come back to you to end. Um, what can we do as um, people who are lucky enough to live in a country with better levels of acceptance, a wealthier country, um, with all our privilege, what can we? What's the best way 
to so Matthew was saying earlier about helping local activists. What is the best way for us to change things for people living, LGBTQ plus people living in your country, Nigeria? How can we help? Well, I would start by saying to work with local societies, civil societies in Nigeria to get the feelings of how they want to be supported. Because I'm this fan of putting people who are affected by the issues in the center of the issues. Let them tell you how they want you to support them. But one other thing from what we've been talking about here is education. I think the Western world, if we want to call it that way, or the wealthy world, or the ones that brought homophobia to African countries, should find a way of letting Africans go back to their roots, to really understand their roots, that this is who we've always been. Not until that is well taught, it will be hard to support people to wanting to change because it would always come back to, oh, they told us they, they, they brought law against it. So why are they telling us now not to uphold the laws again? So it is that why that they need to make sure that people are aware of that. This is what people have always been all along before they came. Brilliant. Thank you very much for that. And thank you very much for joining us. We talked earlier about artists of all disciplines who hold anti-queer views. But let's end on a positive note by focusing on the opposite. Let's talk about the boom in music created by queer artists and who are our favourites. So when I was growing up and when you were growing up, Toddy, most queer artists, as we remember, they all had to stay in the closet in order to have a career. Even people misremember now, Alex, but Freddie Mercury, George Michael, they had to stay in the closet in the 80s. George Michael only came out when he was forced out. Freddie Mercury never came out. Mm. Um, there were a few queer musicians, Jimmy Somerville of Bromsky Beat mm. and the Communards, Andy Bellavereja. But for most of, the, most of the time, we had to rely on straight artists to have our backs, didn't we, Toddy? You mentioned yeah, Madonna well, earlier. I don't think many straight artists did, ha- did have our backs, really. I mean, even, I mean, Madonna was amazing. But it, like to me, I, I feel like Madonna was talking about gay stuff in 1990 when she did the Blonde Ambition tour and had the gay dancers. Did she talk before? Yes! I can't remember. She was doing her best friend died of AIDS in 1986, Martin Bagoy. Yeah, but was she, she was talking doing... about that? Yes, she did an AIDS benefit in 1987. Yeah, but I don't she remember did... that being reported here. Well, it may, it may not have been, but it was over there. She did mm. an AIDS benefit in 1987. 1986, the Open Your Heart video, she had a lesbian drag, ki- drag oh, yeah, king yeah, in yeah, it. She yeah, had two yeah, gay sailors yeah. arm in arm. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I, she... I mean, Boy George was incredible. Boy George was, I think, like, I remember the, the tabloids were like, is it a man or a woman, gender bender, all these kind of like, weird said kind of ra- blunt terms. And he said I'd rather have a cup of tea, but he at did come be- out later. At the beginning, but then when he did come out, I mean, I mean, I think just having someone who was gender non-conforming, who, and, uh, like, was it 82, 83, he was the biggest star yes, in the whole world. Yes. I mean, he was absolutely a, a megastar and I think that was really groundbreaking I feel like that was like a massive step forward wasn't it yeah because even though he said I'd rather have a cup of tea and whatever even then just the fact that he was gender non-conforming and so visible we knew something was going on it was not the same as everything else around was yes it? and as soon as he came out he did become kind of the go-to kind of spokesperson and I think he carried a lot of weight of that uh, it must have been you know quite difficult and I, I really feel like 
he was amazing and he did that he did these uh, no clause 27 i think it was wasn't it uh, that for, for when section 28 was coming the, a specific record about yeah, it yeah, yeah, he, he was did, very vocal yeah. i mean bronsky b and jimmy somerville they amazing. were amazing don't get enough credit you know really did come out were not just you know out they were on the marches they were very vocal the pits and perverts concert that they did supporting the miners I mean, they, Jimmy Somerville does not get enough oh, I know. credit. And I know. He's very, he want, he, 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 we tried to give him an attitude award and he said, I, I just don't do that kind of stuff. He he's kind of keeps it all very low-key, but he does not get you know the recognition for what he did. He well, was amazing. Well, let's put that to the test. Alex, as a much younger person, do you know who Jimmy Somerville and Andy Bell are? No. You've not heard of Jimmy Somerville? Wait, uh, so Jimmy Somerville, is, is that the communards? Yes. Yeah, yes. yeah, and they do that. Ah, baby! Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, interestingly enough, so I don't know if you noticed, but earlier one of the um, viewers that... Yes, Richard, Richard Coles, Coles, who was the other communard. Exactly, the Reverend Richard Coles, who my dad has actually spoken to on a train before. Um, but yeah, he was also out, mm. I yes. think. So, mm. the com- so there were this handful, very, very few, yeah. and they were um, a handful. But as Toddy was saying about people like Boy George, they were pioneers, they paved the way. There were so many now. Um, you know, I remember you saying to me when I was editor of Attitude, Toddy, that you used to struggle to get openly queer stars on the cover and often had to settle for allies because there were so few of them around. By the time I yeah. was doing it, 2016, there were loads. You're batting them away now, honestly. Mm, but well, they're all queuing up, aren't they? Yeah. I but... mean, in 1994, when Attitude started, they could not get people to appear on the cover, gay or straight. I mean, it, it was it was kind of difficult. I mean... There weren't very many gay people that were famous enough. Boy George was on the cover of the first issue of Attitude. It was in 96 when Robbie Williams, who just left Take That, gave Attitude a big exclusive, which was a really amazing thing. He could have gone to any of the biggest magazines in the country, but he chose Attitude, and that was a real turning point for them for the magazine because it really showed to the world that it was a cool magazine to yeah. do that would get you know a lot of attention, a lot of press. So, yeah, it was, it's been a very strange journey to think about people who were kind of nervous about... I mean, there were still people when I was editing it that would that would say no. To and then, so how does it make you feel now to look at artists like Lil Nas X and how wonderfully, kind of gloriously queer and gay and open... You know, it's all... It's brilliant. It's all out there. Isn't that great, yeah, it's though? Yeah, it's, it, it's kind of mind-boggling, really, to, to people of my generation. I mean, it certainly is to me. You know, I, I, I felt very sad growing up. I longed for artists to be talking about, you know, gayness or just, you know, just singing a song in the appropriate gender. I remember, you know, David McCalmont from McCalmont and Butlin did a great EP. I think, I can't, is it called the Saturday EP? But anyway, there's a song on it called Saturday, which is about gay pride. And I love that song. It wasn't a hit. People didn't really hear about it. But I love that song because it was just talking about something to do with our lives. And it's still relatively rare, but but obviously with people like him, it's it's changing. And Alex, who are you? Li- who do you like to listen to? Do you have any queer musicians who are on your playlist? Oh my god, I don't even know. I you probably couldn't rub two straight guys together on my playlist, but um, is it all women on your playlist? Yeah, it's then? all girls. I love Lords, Superpower. But I tell you what, queer woman, I'm obsessed with this week. It is actually Kristen Stewart as Princess Diana in the poster of Spencer. I can't wait to see it. Oh my god, we're getting totally off topic now with I know, musicians. but like, you know, it's kind of a queer artist. Can I, can I ask you a question? Sam Smith was yeah. held, held up five years ago as um when they were presenting Identifying as a Gay Man. Uh-huh. Isn't this wonderful? Singing in the correct gender, having the biggest selling album of the year, a gay man, wonderful. Since Sam Smith has come out as non-binary, 
I get the impression their career has faltered a bit. Is there any connection between the dip in their success and the coming out as non-binary, do you think? I don't know, because the only reason why I think there would be a dip in the success is that they're no longer seen as a sex symbol. But I don't think that they Sam Smith... In- was ever seen as a sex symbol, so I'm not. I'm not so sure. Um, Demi Lovato is still doing well; they're everywhere still. Um, yeah, I think. I think they'll just put a new album out, call it them, and oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> their album. That's what I'd call it if I was them. All right, so we're going to be. We need to end. Can we be positive about the future? There's going to be loads of queer musicians, isn't it? Yay! All going to be wonderful. Woo! Yay. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Fantastic. That is about it for this week. Thanks very much to my guests, Matthew Todd, Alex Woolhouse, Jake Graff and Adaronke Apata. I will be back with a brand new panel and some brand new discussions at the same time next week. Drop me a line if you've enjoyed the show, if you want to share an experience or want to have your say. If you're looking for us on social media, we're on at Virgin Radio UK and I'm on at Matt Kane writer or you can email us on pride at virginradio.co.uk see you at the same time next sunday